This is the best affair on the Mormon Faircast. This episode comes from the 2006 Fair Conference and is a talk delivered by Matthew Roper entitled Adam in Ancient Texts and the Restoration. Matt Roper, I always know Matt Roper because of the sparse bio he always gives me. He hardly gives me anything. But uh, Matt Roper is a resident scholar at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute of Religious Scholarship at Brigham Young University. He uh, is a, I know it's not his bio, but I know he, he's written for the Farms Review of Books and for a number of other publications uh, at BYU, and we've always enjoyed him at our conference. So with that, I'll turn the time over to Matt Roper. In several early revelations, which now constitute the Latter-day Saints' Book of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price, the prophet Joseph Smith dictated accounts relating to the early biblical patriarchs, including Adam. In contrast to other Christian denominations, Latter-day Saint teachings about Adam go far beyond what is told in the biblical account. They relate how Adam, after his fall, received a knowledge of the future redemption of God's only begotten Son and a knowledge, through the ministration of heavenly messengers, of the saving ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Other Latter-day revelations speak of the elevated role of Adam at the head of the human family, not only as father of mortal progeny, but in his standing in the priesthood. Adam, Joseph Smith taught, was the first to hold spiritual blessings, to whom was made known the plan of ordinances for the salvation of his posterity unto the end, and to whom Christ was first revealed, and through whom Christ has been revealed from heaven and will continue to be revealed from henceforth. Known through Latter-day Saint revelation as Michael, the archangel, in his pre-mortal state, he is described in modern scripture as a prince whom God the Father entrusted with the keys of salvation under the counsel and direction of the Holy One, or Jesus Christ. Other revelations name him the Ancient of Days, spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. In his divinely appointed mission to restore the ancient gospel and the blessings of the priesthood, once held by ancient patriarchs, the prophet Joseph Smith restored knowledge and authority pertaining to these truths to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On May 4, 1842, the prophet Joseph Smith recorded that he instructed early priesthood leaders in the principles and order of the priesthood which in addition to sacred priesthood ordinances included the setting forth the order pertaining to the Ancient of Days, or Adam. Today I would like to discuss the figure of the first man, or Adam, in relation to ancient religious texts and the Restoration. In what follows, I will survey and identify key themes found in both revealed Latter-day Saint teachings and other ancient texts and beliefs about Adam in ancient Judaism, Christianity, and their subsequent religious and cultural heirs to those traditions. With with a few exceptions, I will be drawing primarily upon religious texts that were rarely known, not easily accessible, or completely unknown during the lifetime of Joseph Smith. The account of the creation in the Latter-day Saint Book of Moses teaches the pre-mortal existence of the first man. For I, the Lord, created all things of which I have spoken spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. And I, the Lord, had created all the children of men, and not yet a man to till the ground. For in heaven created I them, and there was not yet flesh upon the earth, neither in the water, neither in the air. And I, the Lord, formed man from the dust of the ground, 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, the first flesh upon the earth, the first man also. Nevertheless, all things were before created, but spiritually were they created and made according to my word. Here in Latter-day Saint scripture, Adam, the first man, and in fact all the children of man are said to have been created spiritually in heaven before they were created naturally upon the earth. Joseph Smith taught that Adam obtained the keys of the priesthood in the creation before the world was formed. Other Latter-day Saint prophets have taught that Adam assisted in the creation or organization of the earth out of unorganized material. When Father Adam came to assist in organizing the earth out of the crude material that was found, taught Brigham Young, an earth was made upon which the children of men could live. Recent scholarship has focused on evidence that the question of Adam's pre-existence may have been a matter of some controversy in later Judaism. Here it is important to remember that in ancient Judaism, the ancient Judaism was not a monolithic religious entity, but consisted of a variety of competing and sometimes conflicting factions and groups, which were often at religious and ideological odds with, each, with one another. The Talmud contains an interesting reference which states as follows. Our rabbis taught Adam was created last of all beings on the eve of the Sabbath. Why so? Lest the menim, those the rabbis considered heretics, lest the menim should say, the Holy One, blessed be he, had a partner in the work of creation. In his seminal study, The Name of God and the Angel of the Lord, Jarl Fossum notes that the statement from, this statement from the Talmud reflects earlier controversy between competing factions of Judaism over the question of the first man, Adam, and his role in the creation. More specifically, there were those later Jew, who, there were those who later Jews considered heretics or menim, which held that Adam was God's associate in the creation of the world. This earlier Jewish view of Adam may be reflected in an early midrash, which claims that God took counsel with the souls of the righteous in creating the universe. The Jewish proponent of this belief interpreted the passage in First Chronicles four uh, twenty-three which speaks of King Solomon's workers in terms of God as the king of creation. Excuse me, that's First Chronicles 4.22. Um, this passage, well, let me read it for you. This is, uh, again, in the book of First Chronicles, uh, he says here, These were the formers, those that dwelt among the plantations and hedges. There they were with the king in his work. Okay, and that's First Chronicles 4.23. Now, this is the Jewish Midrash interpreting the different parts of this verse. These were the formers. They are termed thus on account of the verse, Then the Lord God formed man, and those that dwell among the plantations. Corresponds to, And the Lord planted a garden in the east. And hedges, corresponds to, I have placed the sand for the bound of the sea. There they were with the king in his work. With the supreme king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he, sat the souls of the righteous with whom he took counsel before creating the world. According to Fossum, this midrash agrees with the rabbinic tradition that God in Genesis 1.26 took counsel with his agents. But it goes further than this in that it explicitly calls God's agents makers and formers with reference to Genesis 
We might also note that the pre-existent righteous in this passage, whom God takes counsel, with whom he takes counsel, are also said to have been already present when God set the bounds of the sea, an event which occurs on the second day of creation in Genesis. Another Midrash states, Before the world was created, there was none to praise God and know him. He created the angels and the holy Hoyot, the heavens and their host, and Adam as well. They were all to praise and glorify their creator. All of this takes place before the creation of the world. In early Judaism and Christianity, some Jews and Gnostic Christians associated the light mentioned in Genesis 1-3 with the pre-existent first man, Adam. This seems to have been based on the fact that the Greek word phos in the Septuagint for Genesis in classical times could mean both light and man, a wordplay that is not, however, found in the Hebrew. The Gospel of the Egyptians, one of the Nagamadi texts, speaks of the first man through whom and to whom everything became, and without whom nothing became. Fossum notes in the so-called Nassin homily, summarized by uh, Bishop Hippolytus, that the celestial Adamas is said to have brought the the chaotic matter to rest in primordial times. Furthermore, it is he who constantly rotates the universe in a circle. Finally, he emits the world ocean, which is surrounding the universe. Several so-called Jewish magical texts also portray the first man as pre-existent and as participating in the creation of the cosmos. In these texts, Adam is addressed as father of the world, a term which in Hellenistic times was synonymous with creator. He's also described as one who, quote, filled the whole universe with air, who hung up the fire from the heavenly waters and separated the earth from the water. In another related text, the heavenly Adam is portrayed as possessing the powerful name possessed by God in the creation. After surveying numerous early Jewish, Christian, and Gnostic traditions about the heavenly man, Fossum concludes that when the rabbis had to maintain that Adam was created on the eve of the Sabbath, they were contending against the doctrine of the heavenly man who was pre-existent or who had been brought into being on the first day of creation. He also argues that this doctrine, although found in uh, later Gnosticism, was of Jewish origin. Recent biblical scholarship suggests that some of these Jewish traditions about pre-existence of the first man may be traced to the book of Job. There, Job's friend Eliphaz challenges the suffering man's claim to wisdom, asking, Are you the firstborn of the human race? Were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? That's in Job 15:7 through 9. Eliphaz's point is that Job cannot lay claim to such heavenly wisdom. Behind his sarcastic challenge, however, rests an understanding that the first man, or Adam, could indeed lay claim to such heavenly wisdom. Several Several elements in these verses lead to this conclusion. First, in contrast to the Genesis account of the creation, the first man in Job is described in the text as having been born or brought forth rather than created or formed, as you find in in Genesis. And there are different verbs used in Genesis than you find in Job. In a recent study of the first man mythology in the book of Job, Dexter Callender observes, in these words of Eliphaz, we learn that the first human was thought to have been born before the hills, 
The verbal root here is hawal, which means to dance or writhe, and it is used in connection with birth imagery, denoting writhing and travail, and hence can render the meaning to bear or bring forth. The meaning of the verb is clear in the parallelism here with yalad, as in Isaiah 51.2. In other words, just like calendar again, the first human is described as having come into existence through natural means, that is, through birth. This usage points to an event, or seems to point to an event, which precedes the formation of man from the dust of the earth in Genesis chapter 2. Second, the first man in Job 15.7 is said to be born before the hills, a term which is also used of the personified figure of wisdom in Proverbs, where wisdom is said to have been possessed by God at the beginning, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. That's in Proverbs 8.25. In the Genesis account of the creation, man's physical body is created on the sixth day, yet the hills and mountains do not appear until the division of the waters from dry land on the second day of creation. Again, this suggests a prior existence for the first man mentioned in Job, which precedes the creation of his body on earth and its placement in the garden. Third, the question of Eliphaz, have you listened in the counsel of God, is informed by a context which places the first man in God's heavenly counsel, where he has access to heavenly wisdom. According to Eliphaz, the wisdom of the primordial human came as a result of his presence within the counsel of God and the fact that he listened. Callender observes that the use of the verbs in this passage may be alluding to a particular divine counsel in which the plan of creation was revealed, or it may indicate continuing access to the counsel, meaning, art thou want to be a listener? Fourth, in Job 38 through 41, the Lord lists various things that Job, as a mortal, cannot possibly know but which God does does know by virtue of his wisdom as creator. We're familiar with this verse as Latter-day Saints. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. According to Herbert May, the motif of the first man created before the earth appears in Job 15:7 through 8 and also is found in Job 38:4-7. In Job chapter 38, the theme of wisdom and knowledge which Job, in contrast with God, does not have. He was not there as first man was there when God laid the foundations of the earth and members of God's council, the morning stars, the sons of God, rejoiced." End quote. In response to God's question, Job, as an imperfect mortal, would have to admit that he did not know. But the first man, or Adam, could have answered yes, since as one associated with God at the creation, he had access to divine wisdom about the creation of the earth. In fact, as Calendar puts it, the primal human was present at the creation, and by virtue of that fact possessed wisdom in its most intimate details. The divine speeches in Job, chapters 38 to 41, make clear that the secrets of the universe lie within the primordium, the epic of creation. As one who was born then, he knew the deepest and most esoteric of knowledge. Thus, in the worldview of the writer of Job and his audience, the first human is an exalted being. He is numbered among the sons of God.
Another theme found in ancient literature on Adam is the teaching that God knew beforehand that Adam would, would fall, and in Christian literature, the idea that knowing beforehand of man's future transgression, God would provide a savior by which man could be saved. In a Coptic Christian work called The Discourse on the Abaton, at the creation, God sends an angel to retrieve clay from the earth to form man's body. The earth objects, complaining that wickedness will be committed by man if he is created and placed upon the earth. The earth says, If thou takest me to him, he will mold me into a form, and I shall become a man and a living soul. And very many sins shall come forth from my heart and body, and many fornications, slanderous abuse, jealousy, hatred, and contention shall come forth from his hand, and many murders and shedding of blood shall come forth from his hand. Let me stay here and go back to the ground and be quiet. In spite of the earth's objections, the angel carries some clay to God for the formation of Adam's physical body. After God creates Adam's body, however, there is a discussion in heaven between the Father and the Son about what to do about man. According to this text, he left him lying for forty days and forty nights without putting breath into him. And he heaved sighs over him daily, saying, If I put breath into this man, he must suffer many pains. And I said unto my father, Put breath into him. I will be an advocate for him. And my father said unto me, If I put breath into him, my beloved son, thou wilt be obliged to go down into the world and to suffer many pains for him before thou shalt have redeemed him and made him come back to his primal state. And I said unto my father, Put breath into him. I will be his advocate, and I will go down into the world and will fulfill thy command. It is clear from this early Christian text that God knows beforehand that man will transgress and that it is necessary to appoint an advocate for man and that Jesus, in this tradition, willingly offered to suffer the pains of man's redemption even before man was given life. Recent studies by... Michael Stone, William Lipscomb, and Gary Anderson, and others have focused on a set, an interesting set of Armenian Christian Adam and Eve texts. These texts were first published in the Armenian language in 1898 and only published in English in the last several decades. These texts discuss events which took place in the Garden of Eden before the fall. In the text, Adam and Eve in the Incarnation The serpent tells Eve, God was man like you. When he ate of the fruit of this tree, he became God of all. In another related text, The History of the Creation and Transgression of Adam, the serpent tells Eve, God was like you because he had not eaten of that fruit. When he ate it, he attained the glory of divinity. Speaking of the devil's words to Eve in this passage, Michael Stone, the editor and translator of this recently published text observes, the formulation in our text says not just that humans will become like God or gods, but also that God was himself originally human and became divine through eating the fruit. In the transgression of Adam, after Eve partakes of the fruit, Adam asks her, again, these are the Arminian texts I spoke of, uh, Adam says, why have you eaten the fruit? Eve responds by saying, The fruit is very sweet. Take and you taste and notice the sweetness of this fruit. But Adam refuses, saying, I cannot taste it. According to this particular account, Eve then begins to cry and beg Adam to eat. And do not separate me from you, she says. 
After some deliberation, three hours according to one account, Adam reasons, Adam reasons, it is better for me to die than to become separated and detached from this woman. And then he partakes of the fruit as well. These and other extra-canonical texts dealing with Adam and Eve indicate that after the redemption of Christ, that Adam would be taken to paradise, that after his resurrection he would be restored to his, to his former premortal inheritance, where according to these texts he once reigned under God as a king and at God's specific command was even worshipped by the angels. This suggests a return to a state where he could again receive such adoration, a state clearly suggestive of deification. The theme of deification, in fact, appears explicitly in the Syriac Testament of Adam, where the patriarch explains to his son Seth, shortly before his death, that God would eventually fulfill Adam's desire. Just before being cast out of the garden, the Lord tells Adam, 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 do not fear. You wanted to be a god? I will make you a god, not right now, but after the space of many years. For your sake, I will taste death and enter into the house of the dead. And after three days, while I am in the tomb, I will raise up the body I received from you, and I will set you at the right hand of my divinity, and I will make you a god, just like you wanted. According to the Doctrine and Covenants, the devil was allowed to tempt Adam and Eve in order that they could become agents unto themselves. For if they never should have the bitter, they could not know the sweet, as it tells us in the Doctrine and Covenants. In the Discourse on Abaton, Satan tells Eve, Ye shall not surely die, but ye shall be like unto these gods. Ye shall know the good and the evil. Ye shall be able to separate the sweet from the bitter. In another text, After Adam and Eve partake of the fruit, the Lord tells them that they will experience opposites during their mortality. Quote, You shall hunger, you shall be sated or filled. You shall be afflicted by bitterness, you shall eat of sweetness. You shall be tormented by heat and afflicted by cold. You shall be pauperized or made poor. You shall become great, you shall grow fat, you will be weakened. According to another version of uh, the same story, their eyes being now opened, Adam identifies their antagonist. It is that Lucifer, and so we will be henceforth forever subject to hardships and numerous diseases. In the Latter-day Saint book of Moses, Eve realizes, after receiving further instruction in the plan of salvation, were it not for our transgression, we never should have seed, and we never should have known good and evil and the joy of our redemption and the eternal life which God giveth to the obedient. The Book of Mormon indicates that the fall was a necessary prerequisite for having children. In this connection, there is an interesting commentary in the Jewish Zohar relating to the curse placed upon Eve after partaking of the fruit. Why, says the Zohar, is the serpent necessary in this connection? It is because it is he who opens the passage for the descent of souls into the world. For if he had not, he did not open the way, no soul would come down to animate man's body in the world. In the conflict of Adam and Eve, first published in English in 1882, God repeatedly reminds Adam of the covenant that he had made with him in the Garden of Eden before he was driven out, that he would provide a savior, the word of God for them after 5,500 years. 
But God had before made this covenant with our father Adam in the same terms before he came out of the garden, where he was by the tree whereof Eve took the fruit and gave it to him to eat. Inasmuch as when our father Adam came out of the garden, he passed by that tree and saw how God had changed the appearance of it into another form and how it withered. And as Adam went to it, he feared, trembled, and fell down. But God in his mercy lifted him up and then made this covenant with him. In the penitence of Adam, the Lord reproves Adam for his disobedience. Adam desired to partake of the fruit of the tree of life in a sinful state, but the Lord informs him that he is forbidden to partake of it in his lifetime. Instead, he gives Adam a charge to abstain from sin. Quote, Rather, when you go out of the garden, guard yourself from slander, from harlotry, from adultery, from sorcery, from the love of money, from avarice, and from all sins. If he does this, he will eventually be able to partake of the tree of life after the resurrection from the dead. In the book of Moses, when God commands Adam not to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he adds, Nevertheless, thou mayest choose for thyself, for it is given unto thee. Other ancient texts related to Adam and Eve also address the question of man's agency. In the second book of Enoch, God says, I gave unto him, Adam, his free will, and I pointed out to him the two ways, light and darkness. And I said to him, This is good for you, but that is bad, so that I might come to know whether he has love toward me or abhorrence, and so that it might be plain who among his race loves me. In the Apocalypse of Shadrach, the prophet asked God, since he knew beforehand that man would transgress, why did he not force man to obey or hold his foot, as it were, by keeping him from transgression? God responds to Shadrach, If I hold his foot, he says, You have given me no grace in the world. And so I left him to his own desires because I loved him, and thus I sent my righteous angels to watch him night and day. While most Adam and Eve texts portray the choice to partake of the fruit as a serious mistake, the Christian Epistola Apostolorum seems to view the choice positively. Adam was given power that he might choose what he wanted from the two, righteousness and sin. And he chose the light and stretched out his hand and took it and left the darkness and withdrew from it. Likewise, every man is given the ability to believe in the light. Although not found in the biblical account, Latter-day Saint scripture and other ancient texts tell how the first couple were visited by heavenly messengers sent from God. Adam taught, uh, excuse me, the prophet Alma in the Book of Mormon taught that after the fall of Adam and Eve, God sent his angels to converse with them who caused men to behold his glory. The prophet Mormon also taught that the Lord sent angels to minister unto the children of men and to make manifest concerning the coming of Christ. Wherefore, by the ministering of angels, and by every word which proceeded from the mouth of God, men began to exercise faith in Christ. In the Doctrine and Covenants, God states, I, the Lord God, gave unto man, or to Adam and his seed, that they should not die as to a temporal death, until the Lord God should send forth to declare unto them repentance and redemption, through faith in the name of mine only begotten, my only begotten Son. And thus did I, the Lord God, appoint unto man the days of his probation, that by his natural death 
he might be raised in immortality unto eternal life, even as many as would believe. The account of Adam and his family in the book of Moses also recounts the ministration of other heavenly messengers as well. Not only angelic messengers, but even God himself is said to have spoken to Adam directly. And thus, the gospel began to be preached from the beginning, being declared by holy angels set forth from the presence of God and by his own voice and by the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's in Moses chapter 5, verse 58. The penance of Adam says that after the fall, angels came from God every day to speak to Adam and to instruct him for a period of 19 days. Other texts explain how Adam and Eve, finding themselves unprepared for mortal life, were instructed by angels in how to deal with basic needs. In the history of the repentance of Adam and Eve, five days after being cast out of the garden, it says on the sixth day, the archangel Gabriel came to them at the command of God. And seeing Adam and Eve lamenting and weeping, he comforted them and told them to eat from the fruit of the earth, which was near to them. The Jewish life of Adam and Eve says, The Lord God sent various seeds by the angel Michael and gave them to Adam and showed him how to work and till the ground so as to have produce by which they and all their generation might live. In the conflict of Adam and Eve, an angel from God teaches Adam and Eve how to make garments out of animal skins. Adam and Eve, however, do not know how to make clothing. Then God sent his angel to show them how to work it out. And the angel said to Adam, Go forth and bring some palm thorns. Then Adam went out and brought some, as the angel commanded him. Then the angel began before them to work out the skins after the manner of one who prepares a shirt. And he took the thorns and stuck them into the skins before their eyes. Then the angel again stood up and prayed to God that the thorns in those skins should be hidden, so as to be, as it were, sewn with one thread. And so it was, by God's order, they became garments for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them withal. The same text relates how angels also protected Adam and Eve from attempts by Satan and his angels to destroy them, and how angels taught the first couple how to prepare for marriage, how to prepare for marriage, and then, at God's command, married them. In the Latin, Armenian, and Georgian versions of the life of Adam and Eve, angels also administer comfort to the first couple. When Eve prepares to give birth for the very first time, Adam, seeing her labor pains, fears that she might die. Adam prayed and spoke a plea to God on her behalf, and the Lord hearkened to him. And behold, twelve angels and two powers came from heaven. One of the angels lays his hand on Eve and blesses her, saying, Blessed are you, Eve, because of Adam, the elect one and servant of God. For his prayers are great before God, and because of him God will deliver you. After Cain murdered Abel, the Lord also comforted the first couple and sent them news of the future birth of Seth. In the life of Adam and Eve, when Eve has a dream where she sees Cain killing Abel, God sends an angel to Adam warning him to keep that mystery a secret and not tell Cain that they know of this. The Mandaean book of John tells how God sent an angel to Adam to bring him knowledge of his heavenly home. At the call of the envoy, Adam awoke, who was lying there. Adam, who was lying there, awoke and went up to the envoy. Come in peace, O envoy, ambassador of life, who art come from the house of my father. The messenger then tells Adam, who is lamenting his fallen state, to cheer up, 
reminding him of his beautiful heavenly throne which awaits him in heaven. I have come and shall instruct thee, Adam, and redeem thee from this world. Hearken and hear and be instructed and ascend victoriously up to the place of light. Adam heard and became a believer. Hail to him who hears after thee and who believes. Adam gazed up full of hope and ascended. Hail to him who after thee ascends. In the conflict of Adam and Eve, the word of God, meaning Christ, often speaks to the first couple when the devil wounds or attacks them and heals them or raises them from the brink of death. The same text states that when he cannot kill them outright, he seeks to deceive them by imitating the true angels sent from God. After Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, Satan came to the cave clad in a garment of light and girt about with a bright girdle. Note the, uh, the priestly imagery there. In his hands was a staff of light, and he looked most awful, but his face was pleasant and his speech was sweet. On another occasion, he gathered together his hosts and came in appearance upon a cloud intent on deceiving them. In the penitence of Adam, Adam prays as follows, Make this enemy of mine distant from me who seeks to lead me astray, I who am seeking for the light that I have lost. In the conflict of Adam and Eve, while they were worshiping God in prayer, Satan and his angels appeared in light and radiance at the mouth of Adam's cave. He began by transforming his hosts. In his hands was a flashing fire, and they were in a great light. Adam, sensing that something is wrong, prayed to God, asking, O Lord, is there in the world another God than thou? If they are of some other God than thou, tell me. And if they are sent from thee, or sent by thee, inform me of the reason which thou hast sent them. An angel then appears to identify Satan and drive him away. Sometimes Adam and Eve are visited by three heavenly messengers. In the Apocalypse of Adam, for example, the first couple are visited by three angels who awaken them and teach them about their origins and then give them a knowledge of the practice of baptism. Adam later passes on this knowledge to his son Seth and their descendants. These three angels are also found in the Mandaean Adam and Eve stories, where Mandahiah, a kind of angelic redeemer figure, sends three kingly angelic messengers called Uthras to teach Adam and Eve the rituals which are necessary for this life, which will help them to ascend back to the place where God, the great life, dwells. Kurt Rudolph, an authority on Gnosticism, notes that the fundamental mission of these, these messengers of light is to instruct the faithful and redeem their souls. And remember, there are three. The leader, Mandahiah, who directs these three, uh, whose name means son of the life, and who personifies redemptive knowledge, oversees the activities of the three who in Mandaean tradition are called Abel, Seth, and Enos. These three function under the direction under the direction of Mandahiah and are said to have appeared to Adam and other notable prophet figures of the past to reveal saving knowledge and the sacred Mandaean rituals. They are, to quote Werner Forster, mythological figures who appear in particular generations and merely repeat the primeval revelation originally made to Adam. They reveal to each generation what was first originally revealed to Adam in the beginning. Latter-day Saints, 
will recall that Prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery testified that Peter, James, and John visited them and bestowed upon them the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood. On October 18, 1840, while serving an apostolic mission in London, Wilfred Woodruff recorded in his journal as follows. We retired to rest in good season. I felt well in my mind and slept until twelve at night. I awoke and meditated upon the things of God till near three o'clock, and while forming a determination to warn the people of London and overcome the powers of darkness by the assistance of God, a person appeared unto me which I considered was the prince of darkness or the devil. He made war with me and attempted to take my life. He caught me by the throat and choked me nearly to death. As, I was, as he was about to overcome me, I prayed to the Father in the name of Jesus for help. I then had power over him, and he left me, though much wounded. Three personages, dressed in white, came to me and prayed with me, and I was immediately healed and delivered from all my troubles. In later descriptions of this episode, President Woodruff indicated that these three angels were dressed in the, as he put it, robes of immortal beings or temple clothing, although he did not know uh, their identity or who they were. In the conflict of Adam, the Lord sends three angels, in this case Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael, to Adam to bestow upon him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which Christ taught them were symbolic of God's kingship, suffering, and death. Later, in one of his many attempts to deceive Adam, Satan and two other devils disguised themselves as angels of God in imitation of the three holy angels who had previously brought Adam these gifts. On this occasion, Adam incorrectly believed that these three were the same angels who visited him before. And quoting now, Because when they came to Adam the first time, there came upon them from him peace and joy, through their bringing him good tokens, the gold of frankincense and myrrh. So Adam thought they were come a second time to give him other tokens for him to rejoice withal. So when Adam heard these words, he believed them and said to these angels, Speak the word of God that I may receive it. And Satan said unto him, Swear and promise me that thou wilt receive it. And Adam said, I know not how to swear and promise. Satan said unto him, Hold out thy hand and put it inside my hand. Then Adam held out his hand and put it into Satan's hand. In this story, Adam and Eve are not married yet. So when Satan commands Adam to have sexual relations with Eve, Adam realizes that these are not angels from God and says, But God never spoke the words thou hast told me. You are not God's angels, nor sent from him, but you are devils, come unto me under the false appearance of angels. Away from me, ye cursed of God. And those devils fled from before Adam. In the Manichaean psalm book, only discovered in 1930, there is an early Manichaean hymn which recounts how God sent an angel to the first man in order to bring him the news of his redemption. Gather and come, O sons of man, and hear the envoy that was sent with the news of the skies. Lo, the newsbearer has been sent with the news of the land of light to tell the news of the skies. He was sent. He came hurrying and rejoicing to the first man that he might tell him the news. He came and knocked at the gates and cried, Open quickly that I may tell you the news of the skies. Rise up, O first man. Open thy gates that are shut that I may tell thee the news. Rise up, O beloved ones, that I may tell thee the news. Before he's willing to receive the message, however, the first man must be convinced that he is a true messenger. Who art thou? For my doors are shut. Give a sign 
that I may open to thee, and thou tell me the news. Once convinced that this is a true messenger from heaven, the first man now excitedly asks, Tell me the news. What does my father do, the father of the lights? What do the twelve do, whom I left surrounding the father? Tell me the news. What does the mother of living do, whom I left, and her brethren also? Tell the news. The messenger responds, Let us go. They await thee. They are on the border. They expect thee. Lo, God is wholly come. Do thou call, and he will answer thee. Lo, they that shall help thee await thee. Their hands are spread to embrace thee. The text then concludes as follows. They help the first man. He cried before them in joy. Great is the joy that there was, the first man being in their midst, laden with garlands and palms. May we be counted among those of the right hand and inherit our kingdom. Lo, this is the news. And may we live with our kinsmen from everlasting to everlasting. The Genesis account tells very little about the lives of Adam and Eve after their expulsion from the garden. Latter-day Saint scripture, however, teaches that Adam also received authority from God to administer and participate in the ordinances of the gospel. Alma in the Book of Mormon taught that beginning with Adam, priests were ordained after the order of his son in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to the son for redemption and that it was through these priesthood ordinances that the children of God could become sanctified and enter into the Lord's presence and rest. The book of Moses relates that after being cast out of the garden, that Adam and Eve began to till the earth. And Adam and Eve, his wife, called upon the name of the Lord. This was a regular practice, for we are also told, Adam and Eve, his wife, ceased not to call upon God. Similarly, in the conflict of Adam and Eve, finding themselves in a world of hardship and danger, the first couple sought refuge in a cave. Then Adam and Eve entered the cave and stood praying in their own tongue, unknown to us, but which they knew well. According to this text, they prayed daily and frequently. After this, Adam and Eve ceased not to stand in the cave, praying and weeping until morning dawned upon them. A recently published Manichaean text discovered in Turfan, China during the last century, says that God appeared to Adam and taught him about salvation and that Adam believed the message and that he, quote, eagerly accepted all the commandments, ordinances, and seals of virtue. Like a mighty hero, he put off the mortal body and was redeemed eternally. He was lifted up to paradise, to the realms of the blessed. In the book of Moses, After being shut out from God's presence because of their transgression, God sometimes spoke to them by his own voice. And he gave unto them commandments that they should worship the Lord their God and should offer the first things of their flocks for an offering unto the Lord. And Adam was obedient unto the commandments of the Lord. And after many days, an angel of the Lord appeared unto Adam, saying, Why dost thou offer sacrifices unto the Lord? And Adam said unto him, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. And then... The angel spake, saying, This thing is a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father, which is full of grace and truth. Wherefore thou shalt do all that thou doest in the name of the Son, and thou shalt repent and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. And in that day the Holy Ghost fell upon Adam, which beareth record of the Father and the Son, saying, I am the only begotten of the Father from the beginning. Henceforth and forever, as thou hast fallen, thou mayest be redeemed, 
and all mankind, even as many as will. According to the Jewish Book of Jubilees, on the day when Adam went out from the Garden of Eden, he offered a sweet-smelling sacrifice of frankincense, galbanum, stacked in spices. According to a second-century Jewish text attributed to Rabbi Nathan, having been cast out of the garden into a world of darkness, Adam rejoiced when he first saw the sun rise. To give thanks, he offered sacrifice. Quote, he arose and built altars and brought an ox whose horns extended beyond its hooves, and he offered it as a burnt offering. At that time, three groups of ministering angels came down, and in their hands were lutes and lyres and all kinds of musical instruments, and they sang a song of praise with Adam. The conflict of Adam and Eve portrays the first couple as completely unaccustomed to deal with the difficulties of life in a mortal condition. In their sorrow and fear at having been cast into a dark and perilous world, they kill themselves. In this account, the word of God, or Christ, then comes and restores them back to life and teaches them that they should not try to kill themselves again, but they must learn to cope with their mortal condition and that all their self-inflicted injury will not save them or allow them to be restored to their former state of happiness or paradise. Adam and Eve stood on their feet, and Adam said to Eve, Gird thyself, and I also will gird myself. And she girded herself as Adam told her. Then Adam and Eve took stones and placed them in the shape of an altar, and they took leaves from the trees outside the garden, which, with which they wiped from the face of the, the rock the blood they had spilled. But that which they had dropped on the sand they took together with the dust wherewith it was mingled and offered it upon the altar as an offering unto God. Then Adam and Eve stood under the altar and wept, thus entreating God, Forgive us of our trespass and our sin, and look upon us with thine eye of mercy. God is then said to have responded to their prayer as follows, O Adam, as thou hast shed thy blood, so will I shed my blood when I become flesh of thy seed. And as thou didst die, Adam, so will I die. And as thou didst build an altar, so will I make for thee an altar on the earth. And as thou didst offer thy blood upon it, so also will I offer my blood upon the altar of the earth. And as thou didst sue for forgiveness through that blood, so also will I make my blood forgiveness of sins and blot out transgressions in it. And now behold, I have accepted thy offering, O Adam, but the days of the covenant wherein I have bound thee are not fulfilled. When they are fulfilled, then I will bring thee back into the garden. Now therefore, strengthen thy heart, and when sorrow comes upon thee, Make me an offering, and I will be favorable to thee. This, then, was the first offering that Adam made unto God, and so it became his custom to do. On another occasion, the Lord miraculously provided corn for Adam and Eve, and in thanks for this heavenly gift, Adam and Eve took the corn and made of it an offering, and took it and offered it up on the mountain, the place where they had offered their first offering of blood. And they offered the oblation again on the altar that they had built at first. And they stood up and prayed and besought the Lord, saying, Thus, O God, when we were in the garden, did our praises go up to thee like this offering. But now, O God, accept this offering from us and turn us not back, reft of thy mercy. In response to this act of faith, God said to Adam and Eve, Since ye have made this oblation and have offered it to me, I shall make it my flesh when I come down upon earth to save you. And then he goes on and, and discusses this. And it says, that God sent a bright fire upon the offering of Adam and Eve and filled it with brightness, grace, and light. And the Holy Ghost came down upon that oblation. 
and the souls of Adam and Eve were brightened, and their hearts were filled with joy and gladness and the praises of God. And God said to Adam, This shall be unto you a custom to do so when affliction and sorrow come upon you. Adam rejoiced at these words which he had heard from God, and he and Eve worshipped before the altar. Adam later makes it a practice to make offerings at the birth of his children and teaches them to continue the practice. The book of Moses teaches that angels taught Adam and Eve the gospel, and the Lord called upon men by the Holy Ghost everywhere and commanded that they should repent, and as many as believed in the Son and repented of their sins should be saved, and as many as believed not and repented not should be damned. And the words went forth out of the mouth of God in a firm decree, wherefore they must be fulfilled. After Adam had repented, the Lord tells him, Behold, I have forgiven thee thy transgression in the Garden of Eden. There are many Jewish, Christian, and even Muslim traditions which describe the repentance of Adam and Eve. These are quite interesting. In the life of Adam and Eve, the first man and women are sorrowful over their transgression and pray for God's forgiveness while standing in the water of the Jordan River for many days. There are other examples in the conflict of Adam and Eve, but I want to focus on some of the Muslim traditions. In Muslim traditions recorded by Al-Qasai, a great collector of these traditions, God in heaven tells the angel Gabriel to inform Adam of the principle of repentance. So Gabriel's in heaven, and God's telling him what to do. God says, I have decreed that my mercy shall reach all who call upon me truly repentant, truly repentant of their sins and making humble entreaty. These are the words I have designated for Adam so that he may have repentance to lead him from darkness into light. Descend therefore to him, Gabriel, and give him my greetings. Wipe away his tears and teach him these words. This text then goes on to say, Gabriel took the words from his Lord and surrounded by his great light descended with them to Adam. After receiving the message from Gabriel, Adam repents and is then told, Peace be with you, Adam. Your repentance has been accepted and your transgression is forgiven. When Adam prayed with these words, he was told, Adam, thou art truly my friend, for I have forgiven thee thy transgression. Ask, and it shall be given thee. When Adam spoke thus, his voice was carried to the distant horizons and the earth, the mountains and the trees. It says, set up the great clamor, saying, Adam, God has given you relief and has blessed you through your repentance. When Adam had accomplished this prostration, he was told, lift up thy head. When he lifted up his face, the veil of light was raised. The gates of heaven were opened to him, and a voice cried out, announcing repentance and absolution. Adam, he was told, God has accepted your repentance. On another occasion, some of the angels chide Adam for having fallen from paradise. Leave him alone, Gabriel said to the angels. Censure him no more for his transgression, for God has erased his sins. Gabriel then struck the earth with his wings, and a spring gushed forth more redolent than musk and sweeter than honey. Adam bathed himself in that water. He said, Praise be to God for this water and for every condition. O God, purify me from my transgression and relieve me of my anxiety. Gabriel clothed him with two robes of heavenly brocade. To Eve, God sent Michael and gave her the glad tidings of repentance and forgiveness and garbed her. He said, Praise to God for his excellence and sanction. When she learned that her repentance had been accepted, she removed herself to the seashore and bathed herself and said, Has not God accepted my repentance? These were Muslim traditions. 
In another Mandaean document, the heavenly messenger says, I am the messenger of light, whom the great one sent into this world. The true messenger, Kustana, am I, in whom there is no falsehood. The true one, in whom there is no falsehood, in whom there is no imperfection nor deficiency, I am the messenger of light. Whoever repents, his soul shall not be cut off from the light, and the Lord will not cut him off or damn him. But the wicked ones, the liars, cut themselves off from the light, for it was manifest to them, and they would not see, and they were called, and they would not listen or believe. Latter-day Saint scripture recounts how Adam was commanded by God not only to repent, but to be baptized. And it came to pass that when the Lord had spoken with Adam, our father, that Adam cried unto the Lord, and he was caught away by the Spirit of the Lord, and he was carried down into the water and laid under the water and was brought forth out of the water. And thus he was baptized, and the Spirit of God descended upon him. And thus he was born of the Spirit and became quickened in the inner man. And he heard a voice out of heaven saying, Thou art baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost. This is the record of the Father and the Son from henceforth and forever. Thou art after the order of him who is without beginning of days or end of years from all eternity to all eternity. Behold, thou art one in me, a son of God, and thus may all become my sons. While the Bible gives no indication that Adam was ever baptized, other ancient Jewish and Christian and later Mandaean texts discuss his baptism. In some accounts, Adam is baptized after death before he can enter paradise or heaven. In other accounts, as in the Latter-day Saint book of Moses, Adam is baptized while in mortality, sometimes by a heavenly entity. According to the early Syrian father Ephraim, in baptism, Adam found again that glory that was among the trees of Eden. He went down and received it out of the water. He put it on and went up and was adorned therein. Man fell in the midst of paradise, and in baptism, compassion restored him. They clothed themselves with the leaves of necessity, but the merciful had pity on their beauty, and instead of leaves of trees, he clothed them with glory in the water. One interesting account can be found in the canonical prayer book of the Mandaeans. The Mandaean teaching that uh, there is an uh, angelic figure, an Uthra, named Hibble Ziwa who sent from God to teach Adam and baptize him. This is the baptism wherewith Adam, the first man, was baptized by Hibbelzewa. Any man who has strength thereto and who loves his soul, let him come and go down into the Jordan and be baptized, and receive the pure sign and put on robes of radiant light and set a fresh wreath upon his head. And Adam descended into the Jordan and submerged himself thrice. When Adam came up out of the water, the heavenly messenger took him by the right hand, and he grasped his hand in Kusta and seated him before him and recited the sealing prayers. This is the end of the baptism which came into the world, the baptism wherewith Hebelzewa baptized Adam, and who was the first man, and it was preserved in the ages for the elect righteous, for it was written down in the scroll. In Mandaean, in the Mandaean book of Adam, called the Ginza, an angel teaches Adam the way back to his heavenly home. When Adam heard this from him, he was overjoyed. He himself had brought him hither, and now he became his guide to the other world. He undressed him and clothed him with his garment. He escorted him and made him ascend and set him up in the house of the mighty. He took him by the right hand and put him in charge of his own treasures. 
Among the Mandaeans, the act of kushta, which means truth, was the exchange of right hands in a truthful oath and held great religious significance for them. In one of their books, The Heavenly Beings state as follows, to give you an idea. Consider the great sign which is called the mighty kusta. Any man who doth not recognize this sign and detracts from its noble distinction alienates himself from us, and we will not set him in our abode. But a man who hath recognized this, who hath distinguisheth, knoweth, inquireth, investigateth, can tell divine from trash, night from day, life from death, evil from good, sweet from bitter, right from left, he hath discernment. Both the Ginza, the Mandaean book of Adam, and the canonical prayer book of the Mandaeans describe how upon death, the soul, leaving behind her mortal body, will ascend to the heavenly world of light from which she originally came. As she ascends through the heavenly spheres, the soul must pass through a series of gates or watch houses where the soul is detained and questioned and where the souls of the wicked and unprepared are punished. As it successfully, patches, as it successfully passes each watch house, the soul dons a series of sacred vestments or clothing at each successful passage. Garment on garment, she puts on. She arrays herself in robe after robe. She laughs, rejoices, leaps for joy, dances, exults, and is overjoyed about the glorious splendor resting upon her and the glory that accrues to her. The text continues. And on she, the soul, went and reached Abater's house of detention. Abater, the ancient, lofty, holy, guarded one. Abater is a powerful angel who guards the entrance into paradise. There his scales are set up, and spirits and souls are questioned before him as to their names, their signs, their blessings, their baptism, and everything that is therewith. According to a Mandan commentary on this passage in the liturgy, this refers to the, quote, four ritual hand class which Abater seeks to exchange with the soul. Each of these four are associated with a separate ritual act and accompanied by a solemn oath. The first kusta is a precious kusta. It is the promise made at baptism. The second kusta is a lofty kusta. It is the oath taken at coronation. No earthly king hath more majesty. The third kusta is a loving one. It is a vow taken at espousal. There is no love like it. The fourth kusta is a powerful kusta, for it traveleth to the other world. It came, it went, and it opened the door to the world. Every man who hath performed these kustas is thereby made perfect, he hath been put to test by all the worlds and will rise upward and behold the place of light. All this in Mandaean tradition was revealed to Adam by divine messengers sent from God to teach him. In the Ginza, Mandahayat tells how messengers were sent to Adam to reveal the proper way to worship. Mandahaya says, When I installed Adam, I appointed three Uthras over him. So he sends the three. I set myself at the head of the Uthras, whom I set over Adam. I stood before them and taught them wonderful hymns. I instructed them in the ritual books. I taught them prayers so that they might be confirmed through the prayers of the life. I said to them, You are set up and confirmed in the place where the good are confirmed. Between the manas, or souls of light, you shall be confirmed. I brought myself forward and instructed them as a teacher does his pupils. I conversed with them and blessed them, and the blessing of the good ones shall rest upon them. Adam, his sons, and his generation shall behold the place of light. And I'm going to just note in the book of Moses, it says that through the ministry of God and angels, quote, 
all things were confirmed unto Adam by an holy ordinance. Latter-day Revelation, I'm nearly done. Latter-day Revelation says concerning Adam that the Lord established his feet and set him upon high. Early convert and pioneer Zebedee Coltrane once described a vision in which he and others shared with the prophet Joseph Smith. In this vision, he reports that they saw Adam and Eve exalted in heaven. The heavens gradually opened and they saw a golden throne on a circular foundation, something like a lighthouse, and on the throne were two aged personages having white hair and clothed in white garments. They were two of the most beautiful and perfect specimens of mankind he'd ever saw. Joseph said, they are our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam was a broad-shouldered man, and Eve was a woman was large in proportion. The Cologne-Manning Codex, discovered in 1969, contains a series of previously unknown visions attributed to early biblical patriarchs. The Codex... Um, the Codex provides fragments of a vision attributed to Adam in which an angel appears to the patriarch and causes him to ascend into heaven where he is then exalted and glorified. Adam is told by the angel, Therefore receive and write these things just as I reveal them to you on exceedingly clean papyrus which is unspoiled and which is not, been, is not harbored by worms. Several scholars who have published studies on this codex believe that the name by which this angel identifies himself to Adam, Balsamos, uh, is based upon a Hebrew expression literally meaning possessor of the divine name, making him the equivalent of the angel of the Lord in Exodus 23. This same text says, Moreover, there were many other things which he revealed to Adam in the vision. Verily, great was the glory that surrounded him. He beheld angels and high officials and mighty powers. Adam was made superior to all the powers and angels of creation. Many other similar things to these are in his writings. And that's where the fragment ends. In a recent study of this text, John Reeves explains that the uh, text describes an ascent experience apparently facilitated by the angel in which Adam is taken up to the heavens, where a transformation of Adam's human status is reported and where he is made superior to all the powers and angels, suggesting a divine restoration to Adam of the position he enjoyed among the heavenly entities prior to his disobedience in the garden. Gerald Fossum has also mustered evidence from other Jewish texts for the idea that Adam fell as a consequence of trying to become like God, but then repented and was raised by God and given the divine name. Uh, quoting Fossum here, this hidden name in Adam's possession was in these texts the name possessed by the heavenly man and is here represented as a cosmological power holding the universe together. There can be no doubt that the hidden name in Adam's possession is the name peculiar to God, which was generally kept secret. In the Apocalypse of Paul, the apostle is shown and introduced to prophets and saints who are in heaven, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jacob and the twelve sons, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Job, Noah, Elijah, Elijah, Zacharias, and John the Baptist. Afterwards, Paul says, And I looked and saw another who surpassed them all. All very beautiful, who surpassed them all, very beautiful, speaking of this last individual. And I said to the angel, Who is this, my Lord? And he said to me, This is Adam, the father of you all. When he came up to me, he greeted me with joy. What is interesting 
is that the text described Adam as surpassing uh, these other notable prophets and saints in glory and beauty in his post-mortal state in heaven. This is very different from the way most Christians tend to think of Adam and his role. The wisdom of Solomon says that personified wisdom, quote, preserved the first form father of the world, Adam, talk about after his fall, that was created alone, and brought him out of his fall and gave him power to rule all things. In the life of Adam and Eve, in the book of the roles, God promises Adam that he will one day be restored to his former glory. On that day, God says, I will turn his sorrow into joy. Then he shall sit on the throne of him who overthrew him. The book of the rolls explains that before his fall, Adam was made a king, priest, and a prophet. After his fall, he is told, Adam, do not grieve, for I will restore thee to thine inheritance, out of which thy rebellion has brought thee. And just concluding the last page, okay. In the testament of Adam, the father of the faithful is taken before the gates of paradise and hell. There he sees two gates, a narrow one which leads to paradise and a broad gate which leads to the other place. And outside the two gates of that place they saw a man seated on a golden throne, and the appearance of the man was terrifying like the master's, according to Abraham, whenever this glorious and enthroned figure saw men and women going through the broad gate, he wept. But when he saw many others entering through the straight gate, he rejoiced. In this text, Abraham asked his angelic guide, Who is this most wondrous man who is adorned in such glory? The angel informed Abraham, This is the first formed Adam, who who is in such glory, and he looks at the world since everyone has come from him. In a recent study of the Testament of Adam, Philip Manoa demonstrates that the enthroned figures in this text of Abel and Adam are influenced by descriptions in Daniel chapter 7. And that, interestingly enough, Adam in the testament of Abraham should be understood to represent the ancient of days in Daniel, agreeing with Joseph Smith's teaching there. In this text, we also see Adam not only glorified in his post-mortal state, but having a throne and sitting at a gate or entrance to paradise. According to Heber C. Kimball, the prophet spoke of a vision in which he saw Adam acting as a gatekeeper at one of the heavenly gates. He saw Adam open the gate of the celestial city and admit the people one by one. He then saw Father Adam conduct them to the throne one by one, where they were crowned kings and priests of God. In another place, Kimball states that he, Joseph, saw in vision the apostles, when they had accomplished their work, arrive at the gate of the celestial city. There Father Adam stood and opened the gate to them, As they entered, he embraced them one by one and kissed them. He then led them to the throne of God, and then the Savior embraced them, each one of them, and kissed them, and crowned each one of them in the presence of God. He saw that they all had beautiful heads of hair, and all looked alike. The impression the vision left on Brother Joseph's mind was so acute in nature that he could never refrain from weeping while rehearsing it. And now to conclude briefly. Critics of Latter-day Saint scripture and teachings have generally paid very little attention to the book of Moses. Those who have condescended to comment on it have generally dismissed it as a shallow plagiarism of New Testament doctrines and themes if they do not ignore it altogether. Such dismissals, however, show an unawareness on the part of these commentators of the often striking convergences between Latter-day Saint scripture and the ancient world. Critics, skeptics, 
and the disaffected have, in my view, generally underestimated the revelations of Joseph Smith. Unfortunately, so have many members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Humibly uh, had a conversation with him once, and he mentioned to me that we as Latter-day Saints have an unfortunate tendency to, as he put it, trash our treasures and treasure our trash. And it may very well be true. I submit to you that the Latter-day revelations of ancient texts through the Prophet Joseph Smith are a treasure that we Latter-day Saints, and I'm sure this includes myself, have yet to fully value and treasure. From the perspective of a believer, we may survey the past as a series of dispensations, each one gone before like a beautiful chandelier once filled with wonderful light, but is now broken and scattered. As we survey the past, with its cycle of previous restorations and apostasies, the careful observer may often detect broken pieces, imperfect, incomplete, but sometimes still very beautiful and reflecting partial light and truth. Some may view these pieces as lucky coincidence, or ignore them altogether, and they are certainly free to do so. However, Latter-day Saints may be justified in seeing such ancient convergences as reflecting broken, but sometimes beautiful parts of a much larger and older story, now more fully illuminated by the Restoration. Questions or comments about this episode can be sent to podcast at fairlds.org or join the conversation at fairblog.org. Tell your friends about us and help increase the popularity of this podcast by rating it in iTunes. Music for this episode was provided courtesy of Lawrence Green. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Affair.